News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. It's Friday, the 19th of March. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. On today's Biz News Power Hour, Dr. Botumelo Semele, CEO of the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority, gives us an update on why ivermectin is still not approved for widespread use for the prevention and treatment of COVID-19 plus an update on vaccine rollout and business opportunities for entrepreneurs in the medical field. Derek Carolyn, a recruitment specialist with Crayon, joins us to share his tips on finding a great job as COVID-19 changes the world of work. Also coming up in the second half of the show, wine expert Carrie Adams gets us into the festive Friday spirit with a fascinating chat with a top South African winemaker. First, my business colleague Melanie Nathan brings us up to date with the business news headlines. RMH's net asset value has decreased by 4%, driven by the strengthening of the RAND. The firm says loss from continuing operations improved in the comparable period, thanks to the elimination of funding costs during its unbundling. RMH says headline earnings decreased by more than 100%, as the results of first RAND are no longer included. Northern Platinum announced an increase in normalized headline earnings to 3.3 billion rand and an increase in headline earnings per share of nearly 74% for the six months ended in December. Sales revenue increased by over 50% and the group did not declare a dividend. South Africa has announced the preferred bidders to provide emergency power to boost supply as ESCOM continues to implement rolling blackouts that are weighing on the economy. The eight bidders will provide a total of almost 2,000 megawatts from various technologies to be connected to the grid by August 2022, according to the Energy Minister, Gwede Mantashe. The projects equate to private sector investment of 45 billion rand. U.S. company Immunity Bio will have its first COVID-19 vaccine made in South Africa by the BioVac Institute, a partly state-owned company, once regulators approve it. Production of the vaccine in South Africa will bolster its role as the only country in Africa to produce the shots. China is restricting use of Tesla cars by its military and some government agencies, citing national security concerns, say people familiar with the matter. The collapse of Greensill Capital left many investors out of pocket, including multiple German municipalities. The Wall Street Journal reports that while the company's bread and butter was providing safe, short-term loans to risk-averse investors, its founder preferred a more speculative and risky approach to deal-making. This attracted the attention of regulators, raised questions from business partners, and led a crucial insurer to walk away. Subscribe to Business Premium for full access to the Wall Street Journal and more on this story. I'm Melanie Nathan, and this was your Biz News Flash Briefing. Justin Rowe Roberts keeps a close eye on the markets throughout the day for biznews.com. Justin, what are the highlights from today? The JSC All Share Index retreated to 65,500. Some of the day's highlights include transaction capital up 4% to 28 28 rand a share, Investic slumped more than 7% to 43 rand a share. Sasol lost more than 8 rand to 214 rand a share on the back of a, week, of a weaker oil price. Coal producer Exaro also lost 8 rand on the day, with the shares trading at 175 rand. 
In the currency markets, the rand weakened against all the major currencies to 14 rand 78 cents against the dollar, 20 rand and 45 cents against the pound. Gold is trading at $1,736 an ounce. Bitcoin is flat at 860,000 rand per Bitcoin. And lastly, Brent crude is sharply down, trading at $63 a barrel. My colleague Charles Boerter specializes in assessing the true value of stocks. Charles has the CFA designation, so he is well equipped to analyze shares for the business community. Charles covers a stock every day on the business power hour, and today he's going to set out the key takeaways from his analysis this week. First, Charles, briefly summarize what intrinsic value is. Why is it an important metric? Sorry, uh, my mic was on mute. Intrinsic value is um, what the fundamental value is based on fundamentals of the business, so cash flows and things like that. That is what analysts would use, uh, Alan Gray and those guys would use to come to uh, an estimate of a share's uh, value. You get that and then you get the share price. And although the stock market is often a very good proxy for um, intrinsic value. It's not always. And so great investors or good investors would buy a share when the stock market is way below the intrinsic value and they would sell if it's the other way around. So some element of subjectivity there, presumably a bit of a mix of art and science. How do you actually do this? Work out the intrinsic value? Yes, definitely. So the the science part is... um, you can, it's a function of three things. The value of a company is a function of three things. And this is uh, mostly based on accounting. So the first one is your return on capital. So how effectively is the company you're looking at using each rand of assets to generate cash? So the, the better they are at turning a rand into cash, the higher the value. So you want then a high percentage second, for that? Yes. So, for instance, um, some of the best companies in the world uh, – you know, Apple and those are at over 35%, 40%. So every rand of assets they have, they're turning into 40 cents of, of earnings or operating earnings, which is so, incredible. So let's look at ShopRite. That was the first stock you covered this week. What is its intrinsic yes. value? Uh, ShopRite's intrinsic value, the calculation I got to is 190 rand. Also, listeners uh, should be aware that this is sort of a range. It's not exactly 190 rand. There's a... Uh, There's a good saying, I'd rather be vaguely right than exactly wrong. So you should just keep that in mind. So ShopRite's intrinsic value, 190 Rand. The share price when we did this recommendation was 151 Rand. Today it closed at 157, Rand 37. I just wanted to say that's, in my opinion, pure luck. It's such a short time range. You can't really, you know, expect uh, it's just based on your uh, recommendation or something like that. Okay, so that was ShopRite. What other companies did you cover this week? So um, I covered Kiro. Um, I did, the education uh, company. Yes, the education, the schools company. Now, Kiro, I didn't I – th- I thought the, the um, share market actually overvalues Kiro. So the share price currently is 10 rand 85. My value is 7 rand 90. The so biggest people should be for- selling Kiro now. People should, yes. Uh, obviously, that's not advice. It's just an opinion. Let's move to African think, rate. Oh, sorry. Continue. Finish. You think uh, it's Yeah, just one, one, cool, one cool thing about uh, Kiro. One, 
I think it's uh, the reason why I came to uh, 790 is it's got very low returns on capital. So in other words, it's got this 178 schools, uh, about 70 that they bought and about 100 that they built. And this is incredible amount of assets. But the only problem is they're generating very little cash or earnings at present from these 178 schools. So just to give you an idea, I think the schools are worth about $9 billion. And they're only making about, if I remember, top made about two hundred million. So in other words, that's that's a very low return on on nine billion rand. But it's it won't be a problem if in future the returns on capital increases a great deal. Now one must understand the promise of Kira was always that initially the returns would be low because you're building the schools, but the schools aren't going to be full from day one. So. What's happening is uh, as schools gradually fill up, Kira would make more money. And there's a certain level at which every new learner that comes into the school, that learner's uh, school fees almost drops from revenue straight to earnings. So the company becomes extremely profitable. So they need a certain then, number of pupils to start making money. Yes, yes. Okay. Have they hit that number yet? The, the problem is they haven't. In 10, in okay. 10 11 years, some of these schools that they started back then was – haven't reached uh, capacity yet. Okay, so a bit of a way to go for Caro. Finally, before yes. we close off here, Charles, we spoke about African Rainbow Capital earlier this week, and you mentioned that the people that run African Rainbow Capital seem to be making better returns than the shareholders. Can you just briefly elaborate? Yes, it's, it's a common complaint uh, among um, analysts that the, the management team is remunerating themselves on a net asset value of uh, the portfolio, African Rainbow Capital's portfolio. The only problem with that is the market seems not to believe that this is the true value. Uh, so in other words, the management of African Rainbow Capital says the business is worth 882. The market for the last three years uh, has said, no, this is about 30, 40% overvalued. Currently, the price is sitting at four rand. So that's more than a 50% discount. So either the market doesn't realize that there's a, what the true intrinsic value is, and it will move towards that intrinsic value, or management is a little bit too um, rose-tinted glasses in terms of what they think. So does your analysis suggest that now is a good time to buy African Rainbow Capital or a good time to sell? I uh, we, we looked at it yesterday. So my intrinsic value, I literally only took the things that I've got a clear view on what it's worth because in an investment holding company, many of the companies you don't, they don't give you information on how much money these companies make. So all that I did is I took some of the listed assets, Afrimat, Alexander Forbes, I took time, I added it all together and I took some of the management fees away and I got to a price of four and seven. Their share price today is four and three cents. So you're essentially getting rain, uh, stakes in Sunlam, Uber, Voldevi, you're getting those for free. But having said that, one must be careful uh, that they may have been too optimistic in, in getting to the value of time, for instance, which is a big part of my calculation. Well, we'll catch up with you on the value of time next week, Charles. Thank you very much. That was Charles okay. Boerter of biznews.com. You're listening to the Biznews Power Hour with Jackie Cameron. It's a very warm welcome now to Derek Carolyn, who joins us on the line. Derek is 
a recruitment specialist. Derek, you describe yourself as a recovering banker dabbling in finance, startups, and bad puns. How did you get to the name Crayon for your recruitment agency? Hi, Jackie. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, yeah, so Crayon stems from the fact that I think everyone has their own unique color in, in, in the box of, box of crayons that is life. And we've got a very strong focus on personality profiling and assessing what makes a human tick, not just around the actual skill set. So we put culture fit front of mind and then combine it with your traditional metrics when, when uh, sourcing talent. And you also say on your LinkedIn profile that you choose beer counting over bean counting. Now, whenever I speak to people in the recruitment area, they tell me things like you must never tell your employ- potential employees if you drink too much. Don't show your Facebook page because your student past will catch up with you. And here you are, you're blatantly saying that you drink a lot of beer. Is this, uh, is this what you advise the people that come to you for recruitment advice? I guess it's a fine line between showing your personality um, and then over-disclosing. I wouldn't say um, it's advised to, to you know, share your entire weekend continually with, with prospective employers. But, um, yeah, you've got to show your personality. We encourage it in interviews to also, um, you know, relax, introduce your cat to us on the Zoom video, uh, whatever the case is, to try and get that human element across because the world has moved to um, a slightly more distant engagement with, with Zoom being the norm. So, yeah, that, that sort of approach is encouraged. Uh, with, within reason, you've got to still remain professional and uh, tongue-in-cheek, but not, not, uh, not, don't cross the line. And, Derek, it's really hard to get a job at the moment. You know, we've heard that literally millions of South Africans have lost their job in the COVID-19 era with all these containment measures. There are many businesses uh, under pressure, what are you seeing in your books? Where, where are the opportunities for people? That, that is definitely the case. Um, it is a job market where your obviously the ratios between job seekers and available jobs is completely skewed. And, and the importance then for, for candidates is that you really need to stand out. Uh, the opportunities, I'd say, have moved towards uh, roles that embrace remote working. So, you know, we're talking obviously tech, coding, your digital marketing, um, even fintech, and just accounting roles that embrace remote working with the likes of zero and that sort of thing. So it's it's definitely it's more a way of working and a way of being able to you know work with project management tools and adaptability more so than just a pure uh, art and art skill set related to that role. It's a way of how you embrace uh, the workplace, especially given how everything has changed in the past uh, couple of well, past year. Is there a particular demand for a specific type of professional right now? For example, I hear in the U.S. that uh, cybersecurity experts are in huge demand. Are you seeing that in South Africa? Cybersecurity, yes. Uh, I think we're a little bit behind that curve, but it definitely is. It is showing and is picking up. We still are very much, uh, you know, running with a lot of data scientists, uh, business analysts. Uh, you know, Capitec the other day released a, an article. Uh, that they're looking to to hire 100 plus uh, you know data scientists, and I think that stems from the overload of information that we have at our disposal nowadays, and the fact that businesses have this information, and um, you know information is only as useful as you know all the data is only as useful as the as the information you can glean from it, and I think the people that have the ability to convert that data into actually actionable ideas, that is a big skill set that we're seeing uh, a massive demand for at this stage. 
So when you apply for a job, it seems that employers like to see a golden thread running through your CV. They want someone whose previous work, aspirations and dreams all map up neatly with the job on offer. But the reality is there are many people right now looking for a job because they've lost a job. So how do they navigate that challenge in their CV and in their interview? How do they map up this very different background with a job that they need and they maybe feel that they can uh, adjust to, but the reality is there isn't a neat path to that job. What kind of advice do you give people? So I think in South Africa, we, we see that there's definitely a, a problem with CVs and the way that people approach their CVs. And I, and I feel it stems from a lack of training and education, you know, surrounding that, that, that need for a decent CV and how you portray yourself. My advice in that instance would be focus less on what you have done and focus more on what you've done in your past enables you to achieve and do for your future employer. So it's more around an employer is looking to see, can you get the job done and how will you get it done? They, they, yes, they look at your past history, but the way you articulate it and the way you visualize it on your CV needs to be focusing on what is my skill set? What do I bring to the table? Um, how can I, and if you are able to adapt your CV to a specific role that you're applying for, that, that would be first prize because you're showing that employer that you're someone that can come in. And although you might not have the golden path to that specific role, you're showing that you have the skill set and adaptability to tackle a new project, um, learn with it, and get the job done. So, Derek, German TV audio built recently stole a few minutes with Elon Musk, the founder of Tesla, the South Africa-born global tech pioneer, to pick up with him on what he looks for in an employee. Can you take a listen? It will be very interesting to hear what you make of his advice. Sure, sounds good. When I interview somebody, I really just ask them to tell me the story of their career and what they, you know, what are some of the tougher problems that they dealt with, mm-hmm. how they dealt with those, and um, how they made decisions at key transition points. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and usually that's enough for me to get a very good gut feel about someone. And, um, and, and what I'm really looking for is evidence of exceptional ability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, did, did they face really difficult problems and overcome them? Um, and, and then, of course, you want to make sure that, that if, if there was some significant accomplishment, were they really responsible or was somebody else more responsible? And uh, you know, usually the person who's had to struggle with the problem, they really understand it, you know, they don't, and they don't forget yeah. <laughs> you know, if it was very difficult. So um, you can ask them detailed, very detailed questions about it, and they will, they will know the answer. Okay, Whereas yeah. the person who was not truly responsible for um, that accomplishment uh, will not know the details. College, college, There's no need even to have a college degree oh, okay. at all, uh, or even okay. high school. The, um, I mean, if somebody graduated from a great university, that may be an, indi- that may be an indication that they will be capable of great things, but mm-hmm. it's not necessarily the case. Um, you know, if you look at, um, say, people like... Uh, Bill Gates, Larry Ellison, Steve Jobs, these guys didn't graduate from college. But if you had a chance to hire them, of course, that would be a good idea. (laughs) So, you know, just looking just for evidence of exceptional ability. Um, And if there's a track record of exceptional achievement, then it's likely that that will continue into the future. So, Derek, how important are qualifications for you when you are helping potential employers find new candidates? 
Yeah, so it's it's hard to disagree with the man who's sent rockets into space. Um, so yeah, what he says there is, is spot on, and I think it's, it's twofold. The employers need to um, almost prepare their interviews and and be be or practice what is going to be asked because that sort of information doesn't just come through generic questions that are asked to candidates. So that sort of question is exactly what you should be asking. And then from a from a candidate's point of view, uh, again back to the CV highlights what it was that what was your role in that achievement you know did you just partake in the project as Elon says did you run the project again it shows to the potential employer um, how you would get um, you know get that project done and then what value add you can bring to the table and, and how you've done that previously so Derek what Elon Musk is saying here isn't actually unique you often hear recruitment agents and potential employers saying that they want to hear from candidates about their greatest problem and how they overcame that uh, and the reality is that most of us at work, our employers actually want to see that we're team players. So what we're hearing from Elon is you need to single out why you personally solved the problem. But every day at work in your, in your job, you're expected to solve the problem as part of a team. How do you uh, map that up with what you've just said now? What, what does somebody who's looking for a job uh, do to get across that they were responsible for a key change within a team? So I think... Although, yes, teamwork is obviously encouraged, the way that the world's going and with the remote working, I feel that there's definitely a need for individuals to be able to work more independently um, without throwing teamwork out the window, but have the ability to manage your own time, your own uh, project, be in control of what you're going to do that day, set your deliverables, action them, and then report back at the end of the day. That, that is a skill set in itself. That that is is you know takes time to to learn and takes time to coach from an employer's point of view, but I think even within a team, there are always tasks and aspects to that team that were allocated to individuals, and even if it's the the, the smallest aspect of that project, it's still something that you can highlight to an employer to say, this was my role. Yes, it was a small role, but I hit it out the park for the following reasons, and this is how I approached it, and and the seniority level. The, the nature of that responsibility will, will shift up and down. But, um, yeah, I feel even with teamwork, you can highlight your individual contribution to that team. Um, it's like a professional sports team. Yes, everyone remembers that the Springboks won uh, the World Cup, but if you ask the fly-off or the scrum-off how they specifically achieve that, you know, they'll say, they'll say their part in terms of passing and kicking and, and then whatever the need was. Derek, do you think that the best people for the job usually get the job, or is it the people who have, who have the technique of applying for jobs and get doing a good interview who actually end up with the best positions? So I feel that is a bit of a fallacy to, to, to always assume the best person got the job. And we get hundreds of emails asking, why was I rejected or why didn't I get hired? In the job market as it is, with so many applicants and so few opportunities, I would say the number one reason is timing. It's, it's an opportunistic timing aspect in terms of when that role was available and who applied and at what point. Um, even with recruiters, you know, we get we get bulk applications. We go through a process. If your timing is out and you miss a certain process in that in that overall job search, you may miss out. So people need to realize that as, as hard as you try, sometimes there is an element of luck. And don't get despondent if you don't get a job. It's not always necessarily a reflection on you or your CV. Um, but that said, you know, you, you need to, again, go back to highlighting 
what it is that you bring to the table because because of the fact that there are so many people who are applying and all have similar qualifications potentially and backgrounds to you. So again, you need to stand out and that's a personable uh, aspect. It's the way you engage on the interview. It's that little bit extra that you do for the employer by presenting a case study. Um, it's no longer good enough, I feel, just to have a CV or even have a good interview. You know, you need to be able to show them what you can bring to the table. So, Derek, before we close off here, you know, I, I often hear that people hire people who are like themselves. And at, once in my life, I worked for a woman who, who had long red hair. And it, it actually was quite conspicuous that she preferred hiring people who had red hair, were female. Uh, you know, there, there, was a, there was an obvious physical similarity and then also a bit of a, a similar personality as well. Do you see that a lot? Do you think that it helps to be like the people that you want to work for? So if they play golf, you play golf. You know, is it easier for, for you to, to place a man in a, in a work environment where that employer likes to hire men? Or do you think that that's misplaced? Um. I mean, good opportunity for redheads, I think, but no, we don't see it too often. Um, we, we Look, what we do up front is do the personality and assessment of the original team. Then you need to decide, are you looking to shake up that team and bring in different personalities, or are you trying to keep the peace and hire someone who fits that culture? Um, I, would, I would say that, you know, as a, as, a, as a boss, you need to look at yourself and, and truly understand your own nature um, and decide, are you going to clash with someone who's exactly the same as you? I hear many entrepreneurs saying, I must hire someone who's like me. But what happens is they bring them into the team and there's an immediate clash. So therefore, maybe hire what we call a supporter, which is more of a, you know, the people who get stuff done because you don't need everyone having ideas and no one having the ability to actually execute them. So I think, yeah, it takes a bit of a strategic step back. You need to look at yourself, look at your team dynamics, and, and look what you're trying to bring to the table. We, we try and avoid um, hiring along the lines of hair color, sports interest, but it does happen, and, and it's just an unavoidable sort of human human aspect that, that is inherent in, in hiring uh, humans, effectively. You've been listening to Derek Carolyn, founder and CEO of Crayon, a recruitment company. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour with Jackie Cameron. Earlier this week, the African Christian Democratic Party announced that it had achieved a legal victory in the fight to secure widespread use of ivermectin for COVID-19 treatment. Ivermectin is largely used in South Africa as a veterinary antiparasitic, but there is a growing group of medical experts around the world who believe it may help treat and prevent the spread of COVID-19 but today, Dr. Botomele Semeti, the CEO of the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority, told me, Jackie Cameron of BizNews, that victory was brief for the ACDP and the legal battle continues over the use of ivermectin. She also spoke to me about COVID-19 vaccination rollout in South Africa and some opportunities for entrepreneurs in the medical arena. Take a listen. No, thank you. And I mean, the, the legal cases are still ongoing, so I won't go into too much detail on the legal matters. But um, just to indicate that from a science-based and a regulatory, um, you know, position, we have been keeping track of all the information um, and scientific data that has been coming up. And our position of the 28th of January still remains is that there's insufficient um, scientific information to say 
um, there is indeed a clinical benefit when one uses ivermectin. And also there's insufficient information that says there's no clinical benefit. So we've seen, um, you know, and, and the most recent study was a study conducted in Colombia that showed that when patients were given placebo and ivermectin, there was no statistical difference in terms of the clinical outcomes. So again, um, you know, uh, there still is insufficient data for us as a regulator to then say we authorize the use of this um, product for the management of COVID-19. So we still are of that position. However, as we indicated, we have this very controlled, compassionate access use uh, program that we continue to monitor and the, 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 the product wherein a medical practitioner uh, wants to utilize it based on a clinical assessment, they can then access the product um, via that program and they'll have to report to us if there's any um, you know, clinical benefit or safety issues. So what are the next steps then in, in searching for a cure for COVID-19 or looking at ivermectin as a possible treatment? Are you involved in human trials in South Africa at all? Or you know, what is, how do we get, take this forward? Yeah, I mean, for us as a regulator, we don't conduct the clinical trials themselves, but we would play an oversight role and a regulatory role over that. And, um, you know, we still encourage the scientific community in South Africa to conduct um, these trials. There's a number of trials that are ongoing across the world. And, you know, as data becomes available, we continue to um, assess and, and, and monitor that. We are expecting that from some of the trials that are going on in other countries, we may have a bit more data, um, you know, that comes through sometime in April or May. And so, you know, we encourage the scientific community to conduct clinical trials. And um, at the moment, um, we've got one application for a, what we call a bioavailability study that looks at, you know, how the body would, would absorb um, um, ivermectin, the, the actual um, active, and whether that will, um, you know, give the required bioavailability um, and, and that's the study that's currently under review. So we really are hoping that more studies um, that would look at the clinical uh, uh, impact of the drug would um, then be submitted to us. So am I right in understanding then that if South Africa is to take ivermectin forward, what we need is a university to conduct a trial or some medical specialist to come forward with a proper trial? Indeed. I mean, so, so that's one um, aspect, right, wherein South Africa does conduct a trial um, and data is generated from that. But also, I mean, we don't only consider data from South Africa. We will look at um, data that emerges from other countries. And if that data becomes um, positive, uh, we will review our decision. So we not only depend on local data. Dr. Sumeti, vaccination rollout must be keeping you very busy. For our international listeners, can you briefly sketch out which vaccines have been approved for treating COVID-19 in South Africa and which ones are being investigated for possible use? Sure, thank you. Um, so, I mean, in terms of um, the ones that we've authorised under uh, emergency use and we use our Section 21 mechanism within the Medicines Act, we have um, recently, um, this week actually, authorised uh, Pfizer um, under Section 21 with a very stringent uh, post-marketing um, you know, surveillance um, in the context that uh, we find ourselves in with um, uh, 501YV2 uh, variant. That is the dominant variant in the country. We've also received applications for the Sputnik uh, vaccine, and we've also recently received an application 
from um, Sinovac. So that's Russia and China. Russia and China, yeah. China, I know, has got a, f- uh, a few more. Uh, Sinovac is one of them. We have had um, pre-submission discussions with um, a few more, uh, Sinopharm uh, being one of them. So we do anticipate that, you know, we will we'll start um, seeing a, a lot more applications. But, I mean, in terms of the clinical trials that are ongoing, we've got a lot more, um, you know, that are in clinical trials at different stages, whether it's phase two um, clinical trial of phase 3A. So there's actually quite a lot. But in terms of what is currently being assessed, we also then have the um, J&J vaccine, which um, currently is uh, being implemented under phase 3B. Um, implementation study, we also... What does that mean for people who aren't familiar with the medical uh, details? Is this close to being approved? Yeah, so we currently are busy with the evaluation of the J&J uh, vaccine for, uh, you know, market authorization. And uh, while this is ongoing, um, you know, the uh, Department of Health, together with the MRC, are busy with this phase 3B study. And that, what, what that means is, you know, we've got um, data from a phase 3A um, study. And we then needed to collect, um, you know, more data. And so uh, the space 3B study enables um, then the, the, the um, in this case, the Medical Research Council and J&J to collect uh, more data. So that's what's currently ongoing. So it's for a limited number, um, primarily um, in, in um, you know, uh, healthcare workers. That's the cohort wherein it's being applied. And AstraZeneca, where do you stand on AstraZeneca? Sure. So AstraZeneca, I mean, from a, um, a regulatory stance, we are busy evaluating, um, you know, quite a detailed report that we received from them um, on the data uh, that indicated that um, it had a significantly reduced efficacy against the 501YV2 uh, variant. And um you know, once we finalize that, we will then um, communicate our decision to them. So as we speak, I mean, it would still be, you know, authorized under the emergency use. But you may be aware that the country um, decided not to to roll it out uh, because of this reduction in, in efficacy. We've also been keeping abreast of the developments around um, its safety profile. Um, and we've noted the uh, publication from yesterday. I think, yes, it was yesterday evening from um, EMA regarding um, that, you know, the, the, the benefits of this vaccine outweigh the risk in, indeed. So we continue to, to monitor it. South Africa has a number of pharmaceutical companies that are in the global limelight. And we hear, for example, Aspen is producing a, a drug, dexamethasone, that seems to help with treating COVID-19. When it comes to vaccination production in South Africa, why doesn't there seem to be, be much traction in that area? Yeah, um, I mean, it's actually, you know, a conversation that's happening across, um, you know, various stakeholders within government because there is that realization that we do need to um, increase capacity. We do have the BioVac Institute that currently manufactures some of the vaccines. I think it's more the pediatric vaccines in the country. Uh, Probably a few more could uh, I'll just have to check them. But I know that there are in discussions with, with some of these companies around um, you know, possible manufacturing. Um, there are a few companies that are looking at, um, you know, more downstream around um, 
building capability for fill and finish. So this is something that the country I'm aware, um, you know, in, in other hats that I that I wear, that um, there is an ongoing conversation. And I think there will be some investment going in into that area because we recognize the need for us to have this capacity. South Africa has been criticized for being too slow in vaccination rollout. And this is one possible logjam. Where are the other logjams? Yeah, I mean, you know, with, with the Roland, I think, um, you know, to be fair, um, you know, we were ready in essence with the AstraZeneca vaccine. I mean, we authorized it as a regulator. I think it was on the 22nd of January. Um, and, um, you know, when we then got the reports on this new variant, um, it did indeed throw a curveball, uh, for us as a country. And that did slow things down. But, um, you know, with the J&J, Phase 3B, and now we've authorized um, Pfizer, and we hope to finalize the authorization for the, um, you know, J&J vaccine. We hope that we will start to, um, you know, move with speed with regards to to this rollout. I think, um, you know, in terms of the other areas, I mean, from a regulatory perspective, we can say we're working with as much speed as possible. We are also uh, where possible. Um, applying reliance mechanisms wherein we're getting assessment reports from the other regulators and utilizing that to see, you know, what, what the evaluation uh, and, and assessment uh, of the various vaccines are and relying on that. And so um, from a regulatory perspective, I think we're working with as much speed as we possibly can. Um, from a logistics and distribution distribution uh, perspective, I mean, I can't speak with authority but I know that the Department of Health is talking to a number of stakeholders to ensure that, um, you know, that part of the value chain is as seamless as possible. But I unfortunately can't speak with authority, um, you know, regarding that. Dr. Sumeti, COVID-19 is unprecedented. How is it changing the way you work at your authority? Yeah, and very interesting uh, that you asked that because we've, we've had um, – you know, last year we did have um, a, a discussion as the leadership of the organization to say, what what can we take away, um, you know, from the COVID-19 experience? And there's a lot of learnings. I think one being in the area of um, being very responsive. And we realized that we needed to be quite agile um, as, as a regulator and be a lot more flexible. So while we continued to be stringent. We found that we had to be a lot more responsive and it's something that we're going to definitely take into the future regarding how we operate. Also, we found that we leveraged a lot on our scientific community um, in the country as, you know, this was a new disease that we were dealing with. So we needed to partner uh, with them, uh, you know, quite strongly. And so that's an additional um, aspect that we will ensure that we do um, quite regularly that we've got very clear um, partnership, um, you know, with our scientific um, community. Uh, the third thing I want to highlight is around, um, you know, being locally relevant. Uh, one of the things that we noted uh, was that there were a lot of technologies that were being developed uh, locally or maybe products. I mean, we had the National Ventilator pro- Project that we needed to um, support and ensure that we expedite the, the evaluation of, um, you know, those ventilators. We had a number of small, medium enterprises who were innovating around in vitro diagnostic tests. And again, we needed to be responsive to that. 
So it's quite clear to us that there's a lot of innovation happening locally. And as a regulator, we then need to say, while we remain stringent and not compromising, you know, on on our uh, regulatory requirements, we, however, still need to enable. So engaging a lot more uh, with the local innovation community, as well as communicating a lot with the public. So those were the key um, takeaways from us. So it looks like South Africa has learned and could develop quite a, a thriving healthcare sector from the ashes of the COVID-19 pandemic. We really, really are hoping so. I mean, we saw excellent partnership between the private sector and the public sector, and I do hope that that continues. Um, for us as a regulator, we um, you know, got sight of the innovation that's happening locally, and so we've had to even look at our processes and say, you know, how enabling are just our processes from that perspective. So um, I, I do think that, um, you know, th- there's relevant conversations that are taking place. Uh, you know, the, the uh, commercial entities and the sector in the country are developing the, the right technologies that we require. And we just need to, I think, be a lot more intentional as a country. That was Dr. Botumele Semeti, the CEO of the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority, giving the Business Power Hour an update on ivermectin and vaccination approvals for fighting COVID-19. Now, it's a very warm welcome to Carrie Adams, one of South Africa's top wine experts. She's with us in our Johannesburg studio to educate us on another top quality wine farm this Friday as we ponder the tipple we might try this weekend. Carrie, who are you interviewing today? Jackie, hi. Thank you so much. So we had a fabulous week in the Berg, which you probably heard about. We missed you. You should have been there. You shouldn't have been in Edinburgh. But anyway, we had a fair week in the in the Berg. And one of the wines that we showcased whilst we were there with all the delegates for the delegates for the Biz News Conference was Andrea Mullineux's Clove Street Chenin Blanc. So this morning we were trying to think, what can we do that's topical and fun and, and whatever? And I said... Let's do Andrea Mullineux. They can't do any better than Andrea Mullineux, so we've got her on the line from Cape Town. Excellent. Well, we look forward to hearing what Andrea has to say. Is she there? Do we do? Ready, steady, go. Andrea, are you with us? I am with you. Thank you for having me on. Hello, my sweet girl. How are you? Doing fantastic. Working our way through through harvest, and um, we see the light at the end of the tunnel. I was going to ask you about that harvest because I saw a little picture on Twitter whilst I was down in the Drakensberg of some beautiful sun-kissed grapes that I know are going to turn into straw wine. Absolutely. That's the that's the beauty of South African wines and specifically Chenin Blanc uh, from South Africa is that they always have that essence of being sun-kissed and you know you taste all of that, that character, that warmth, that um, kind of generosity that the sun can bring, both texture and flavor-wise, in South African Chenin Blancs. I know, and yours more specifically so than anybody's. Am I allowed to brag a bit with our, with our FMR listeners, Andrea? You are sort of like the top potato when it comes to winemaking. You got some massive award last year, or was it the year before? Yeah, no, I've been um, very lucky that that uh, people have, especially journalists, have been enjoying drinking what we like making, what we love making, and um, yeah, I've been uh, very kindly given a few um, titles and awards. <laughs> You're being very modest. You were you were rated the top winemaker by Decanter, if I can remember correctly. Was it Decanter Awards? 
Yeah, wine, wine enthusiast, yes. It was wine enthusiast. Everybody wants to be wine enthusiasts, winemaker of the year, and you indeed were that. So you, together with that gorgeous husband of yours, and I kept on singing your praises the whole way through this week. We did actually use your Clough Street Shannon in a tasting um, at Champagne Sports with our with our um, our conference on Wednesday night, and your Shannon Blanc was just so well accepted because it's the most unbelievably accommodating, generous juicy fruity like i told everybody that the juice was going to run down their chins and it did and we drank and consumed copious quantities of clove street tell everybody on fmr where that fruit comes from andrea sure so the clove street chenin blanc is our introduction to swartland chenin blanc it's um we refer to it as our introduction it's not by any means entry level um just because it's a more affordable price doesn't mean that it's any less of a wine so it's chenin blanc from the Swartland, the Swartland, you know, an hour north of Cape Town and nor- known for its warm, dry, breezy um, weather, which mm-hmm. means that the vineyards can be farmed totally sustainable, minimal intervention, dry land farmed. So, you know, very important in this day and age to do be you, farming as naturally as possible. Do you not uh, irrigate your vineyards at all in the Swartland? Chenin Blanc is incredible for being grown dry land, mm-hmm. which is... Surprising considering the fact it does come from originally from a cooler, yes. damper region of France, but it shows you how adaptable it is. It's Chenin Blanc has been in South Africa since the mid 1600s and it's, um, very well adapted to our climate, um, our soil types and have really shown that they can, um, uh, really showcase where they're grown. So the Shannon you get in South Africa is really unique in character, um, you know, compared to the Shannon in France. We have mm. a bit more texture, a bit more vibrancy, that sunshine you were talking about, and that's what makes South African Shannon so special. Mm. And you and, um, and that man of yours have really sort of turned the Cinderella grape into the princess because Long ago, when I first came back to live in South Africa, Shannon was pretty much Niederberg Stein and Brandy and that sort of thing and lots of Dorsvein and lots of that. So Shannon Blanc turned from Cinderella into this fantastic princess that you and a couple of others have turned her into. It's one of the most honest grapes in the whole lineup of grape varieties in South In fact, in the world, you get fabulous yields from your Shannon, don't you? Yes, I mean, we're working with Shannon that's up to 70 years old, and we still have beautiful yields of about six tons a hectare on, wow. on vineyards that are 70 years old. Um, so Shannon does do incredibly well as um, as older vineyards as well, where you're just concentrating the character um, and just highlighting the the essence of where they're grown. Mm. Andrea, we love that Clove Street, and that's one thing. But I, I want you to just, if you can sort of praise the winemaking process where you turn that Chenin Blanc into what is literally liquid gold in your straw wine bottles. Can you tell us briefly how you make that unbelievably gorgeous wine? Absolutely. So, yes, the straw wine is a type of sweet wine, and it's a fantastic sweet wine for warm, dry areas where you where you obviously cannot make ice wine or, or natural uh, noble late uh, wines where you need a special kind of, of uh, fungus for the wine. So straw wine is when you pick the grapes off the vine at normal ripeness. So the same grapes that would go into one of our Molyneux wines, or one of our dry wines. But instead of bringing them to the winery, we 
hang them in the shade of some trees for for a few weeks where they desiccate and they concentrate in sugar and flavor. And the most important thing is they concentrate in acidity in that time period. And they don't go and rotten. We, they don't go rotten while you leave them hanging there in the trees. No, and that's that's quite important for why we cut them off the vine. Is they, it actually stops the ripening process, and the desiccation process is what protects it from rotting. So yes. instantly, the skins get a bit thicker and you know more leathered in a way mm. um, because they're turning. They're literally turning into raisins. Yes, and when they're about halfway to raisins, um, when there's still a little bit of juice left, that's when we decide to press the grapes. That's when you squeeze the juice out of the grapes. And it drips out like honey. It's, it's, it is like liquid sunshine just dripping out. Um, and it's a long, slow process. There's no instant gratification in it because it, you know, it, it, it takes like a month to dry, two days to press, another year to ferment. Um, but all of that time and all of that effort just, it really helps to create that layer upon layer of complexity in the sweet wine. And it's not just sweet. It's, it's got, um, you know, a beautiful racy acidity as well. And that's what keeps it clean on the palate and helps it really go well with food. And it, and it really has become, um, yeah, really an icon wine, um, just for, you know, all that beauty you get from the long, slow process it takes to make it. Yeah. No, it really, really has. It's one of our, it's one of our national treasures. I don't think anybody really understands how difficult it is. It's like, it's honestly like trying to get blood out of a stone to try and get juice out of a pretty much raisin or sultana. And it does turn into this unbelievable liquid gold that nobody should die without having at least 20 bottles of. You have to go and buy some Molyneux straw wine when you can. You don't have loads and loads and loads of it around, though, do you? No. So, in fact, with every ton of grapes, for making a dry wine, you'll get about 700 bottles of wine from a ton of grapes. For a ton of grapes that you start with to make a sweet wine, you get a maximum of, of 100 bottles of wine. <laughs> so, so it's it's 7 to 10 times more concentrated than a normal wine, which means it's almost impossible to make large amounts of. Mm. So it is it is rare, but it's delicious. No, it's absolutely, it's nectar of the gods. So that being shelved, that's settled. Everybody's got to put Molyneux straw wine onto their shopping list. When You haven't got any of the current vintage that was for sale. It's all sold out, isn't it? So we've got to wait for a new one. Well, actually, on April 1st, we are releasing our new vintage of the straw wine, the 2020 straw wine. So, so it'll, it will be hitting shelves soon. Okay. Well, that's brilliant. If I were to say to you, you and Chris have just got such an amazing lifestyle in the Swartland. I think you live in the Swartland or are you living in Franschuk? And I can't keep up with the Molyneux at this stage of the yeah, game. Well, <laughs> with, with the two wineries, uh, the Molyneux in, in Swartland and Liu Poussant in Franschuk, we do split our time between them depending on where the work is for the day. So which is your favorite? You have this wonderful, romantic, gorgeous family environment that you – that every now and again you let the rest of the world have a sneak preview of one of your beautiful daughters. Everything seems like unbelievably in its place in the Molyneux world. What is your favorite Molyneux or Clue Street or whatever, one of your favorite Molyneux or Leopassant wines? Am I allowed to ask that? 
it's almost as hard as asking which is my favorite child, but I know. <laughs> um, no, I mean, for me, you know, I, one of the main reasons why I moved to the Swartland was obviously for the old Vinechen and Blancs that grow in the area, but also the seduction of the Syrahs in the Swartland. Like mm. our Mullinous Syrah for me is just such a great example of how even in a warm, dry climate, you can make something beautiful and elegant and balanced. And so I think, you know, right now I'm actually going to go home and open up a bottle of my Mullinous new Syrah tonight because it's you know we're getting into that autumn weather and I think it's going to be yeah a stunner I think I'm going to do exactly the same so lots and lots of love to you and Chris and your bubbas and thank you so much we dined out on your beautiful Clough Street Shannon all week I think I'm seeing Nicola next week are you coming up to Johannesburg or not we're still finishing the harvest. <laughs> so, okay, darling. So it's, been a, it's been a long, slow harvest this year. I'm sorry I'll miss you on this trip, but I'll get up there very soon. I cannot wait. Have a fabulous weekend, Andrea, and thanks so much for joining us on FMR. Thank you so much for having me, and cheers to everyone. Bye. Carrie, do you put ice in your straw wine? Never. Never, too sweet. Jackie, you're not allowed to put ice in wine, darling. Come, leave <laughs> leave Edinburgh. Come back to Johannesburg, and we're all going to teach you. We're going to show you. We're gonna I you thought all South Africans put ice in their white wine. They do a bit, but we try, and, we try and pretend we don't see it. Well, I'm looking forward to opening a Shannon this weekend. It, was, it all sounded so delicious. I probably won't get a chance to try the Kloof Street, but I'll be looking out for a nice South African Open Shannon. a Shannon, darling. It's nice and springy in, in Scotland, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, that was Carrie Adams, one of South Africa's top wine experts. She'll be back with us same time next Friday with another interesting interview with one of South Africa's top wine farmers. Clive Eckstein is head of commercial at BizNews. He was also at the Business Investment Conference that we heard a bit about from Carrie Adams. And we've just been hearing all about the wine tasting. And Clive, I see you've got your tan is even deeper than when I saw you last. So I assume that you got that on the golf course. Was it all play and no work at the Business Investment Conference? Uh, I wouldn't say all play and no work. We, we did mix it up a lot. Um, and I think intentionally so. Um, it was fantastic three days or two and a half days. Uh, had a lot of fun and uh, definitely got on the golf course and dropped a few ice cubes and some wine at night as well, Jackie. Yes, you and I, we're a bit of clips when it comes to wine then. Yeah. And uh, did you learn anything about investing while you were there, Clive? Who were some of the speakers that stuck out for you at the conference? I was, it was fantastic. Uh, the list of speakers, I take me the next, the rest of your show to go through. But um, uh, we had a really strong uh Lot of speakers from Herman Mashaba through to Pitt Villian, Nick Hudson, Paula Sullivan, Carrie herself. Carrie was looked after us the one evening, um, and then some of our partners, um, our business partners uh, at Business, Justin Clark, and um, who's Justin Clark with? He's with Orbvest. And, and what do he, they do? They um, they've got medical suites in in the US and um, it's a he went through the investment uh, got a lot of questions from the audience had uh, was an opportunity for him to answer answer the questions and an opportunity for our community to uh, interact with with all the speakers. So um, these are property investments in the US. Did you find a lot of questions about offshore investing? Was that top of mind for in, for investors at the conference? Not, not really. I, I think the the theme of the conference really was around 
thinking, critical thinking, um, and certainly with the speakers from Herman, who got up and is is very forthright in where he sees uh, the political landscape. To Pitfulun about uh, local stocks uh, gave a few um, a lot of insight. To even Charles Savage, Charles Savage and and what he's. I'm sorry, just about, for people who aren't familiar with Charles Savage, he's the CEO of the Purple Group and Easy Equities. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And what did and, he tell you? Well, he just he, we spoke about Bitcoin. Um, you know, generally his, his thinking is very different. Uh, the community, I had quite a few community members come up to me afterwards and saying, one, one um, Mark White came to me and said, I want that interview and I want my kids to listen to it every single day for a month because uh, he's, his thinking is, it's, it's different. And um, really uh, the community loved it. It was really for us, Networking was it was great to get close to the community, get to understand their thinking, what their thoughts of of business. Um, how can we improve it? Um, how we had a, had a lot of fun. That was Clive Eckstein, head of commercial at Business, sharing some of the highlights from the Business inaugural investment conference, and we'll be having another one later on in the year. So do log in regularly to business.com to. Check out the details and make sure you don't miss out on the next one. My colleague, Melanie Nathan, covers the business news for business.com. RMH's net asset value has decreased by 4%, driven by the strengthening of the RAND. The firm says loss from continuing operations improved in the comparable period thanks to the elimination of funding costs during its unbundling. RMH says headline earnings decreased by more than 100% as the results of first round are no longer included. Northern Platinum announced an increase in normalized headline earnings to 3.3 billion rand and an increase in headline earnings per share of nearly 74% for the six months ended in December. Sales revenue increased by over 50% and the group did not declare a dividend. South Africa has announced the preferred bidders to provide emergency power to boost supply as ESCOM continues to implement rolling blackouts that are weighing on the economy. The eight bidders will provide a total of almost 2,000 megawatts from various technologies to be connected to the grid by August 2022, according to the Energy Minister, Gwede Mantashe. The projects equate to private sector investment of 45 billion rand. U.S. company Immunity Bio will have its first COVID-19 vaccine made in South Africa by the BioVac Institute, a partly state-owned company, once regulators approve it. Production of the vaccine in South Africa will bolster its role as the only country in Africa to produce the shots. China is restricting use of Tesla cars by its military and some government agencies, citing national security concerns, say people familiar with the matter. The collapse of Greensill Capital left many investors out of pocket, including multiple German municipalities. The Wall Street Journal reports that while the company's bread and butter was providing safe, short-term loans to risk-averse investors, its founder preferred a more speculative and risky approach to deal-making. This attracted the attention of regulators, raised questions from business partners, and led a crucial insurer to walk away. Subscribe to Business Premium for full access to the Wall Street Journal and more on this story. I'm Melanie Nathan, and this was your Biz News Flash Briefing. Justin Rowe-Roberts covers 
the markets for business throughout the day. Justin, what are the highlights from today? The JSE All Share Index retreated to 65,500. Some of the day's highlights include transaction capital up 4% on the day to 28 Rand, Investec slumped more than 7% to 43 Rand a share, Sasol lost more than 8 Rand to 214 Rand on the back of a weaker oil price. Coal producer Exaro also lost 8 Rand on the day, with the shares trading at 175 Rand. In the currency markets, the Rand weakened against all the major currencies to 14 Rand 78 cents against the dollar and 20 Rand and 45 cents against the pound. Gold is trading at $1,736 an ounce. Bitcoin is flat at 860,000 Rand per Bitcoin. Lastly, Brent crude is sharply down, trading at $63 a barrel. And that's all we've got time for on the Biz News Power Hour. From me, Jackie Cameron, and the rest of the team at Biz News, thank you for joining us here on Fine Music Radio FM and DSTV Channel 838. You can catch up with all of the Biz News Power Hour interviews on our Spotify channel. We'll be back at the same time next week on Monday. Have a good weekend. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.